you know, we had some consultants working with dairies that, you know, were just always a little bit challenged working with DCAD programs. And I was very skeptical of, of the ZLI products, you know, when they first emerged. But, you know, we had some trend-setting nutritionists put some of these in kind of as a, you know, let's give this a shot, you know, and see if this works. And, you know, again, I was skeptical, but, you know, in working with those dairies and those consultants, it was really easy to figure out quickly that something major biologically had changed. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Fibro Animal Health Corporation, Healthy Animals, Healthy Food, Healthy World, DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6%, while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Exelite offers a new approach that is build-effective and the ZDUs. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University. Today, I have the honor of talking with Dr. Patrick Hoffman, who is a professor emeritus from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. Hoffman spent the majority of his career based at the Marshfield Ag Research Station at the University of Wisconsin, uh, carrying out dairy research there. In addition, uh, being at that site made him a community member among the second and third largest dairy counties in the U.S., so as a result, Dr. Hoffman had the opportunity to be of service to the adjacent dairy community and experience almost every dairy nutrition challenge possible. Uh, Dr. Hoffman retired from the university in 2015 and then worked with Vita Plus as a dairy technical specialist for another six years, which allowed him to continue tackling complex problems on dairy farms in Wisconsin and beyond. So although he's retired from that role now, uh, Dr. Hoffman does remain active in the industry. So, Dr. Hoffman, thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for joining. I do have to make one correction, though. It's not Dr. Hoffman. It's just Professor Hoffman. I uh, That's a common thing that people do when you publish a lot of research. People assume. So it's it's not doctor. Just, just Pat is good. So I'm not sure if the podcast has the... Uh, the ability to award honorary doctorates or not but uh, yeah if we can we would give you one so we'll, we'll come thank you very much yeah <laughs> so i'm curious what got you started on this path towards a, a career working in dairy research i don't even know if you grew up in a farm or anything like that oh i think i think it's pretty typical barry i i grew up on a small farm in uh, western wisconsin a little town called arkansas wisconsin spelled with a w on the end most people haven't heard of it but 
I had the pretty traditional background, Barry, uh, 4-H, FFA. um, And then for my uh, uh, bachelor's work, I attended UW-Platteville, which is in the southwest corner of Wisconsin. Great experience. And then I did my graduate work at UW-Madison, my master's degree at UW-Madison under uh, Dr. Lou Armentano. And again, it was... uh, He was a great mentor, and it was just a great experience. Then um, I was a county agent for about six years and, you know, was directly working with farmers both in dairy um, and agronomy. Um, And and that, you know, that really taught me um, that, like, you know, animal or crop production problems were actually really personal. I mean, there was a there was a human on the other end of that that was worried about their business or worried about their livelihood. So, you know, I, I, I became, you know, real cognizant of the personal business engagement of a problem. And, and, you know, you, you quickly become, you know, pretty serious about it. I mean, even though some of the experiences were funny, but you know, you, you became, th- this was a problem for a real person. So, I took it to heart and, you know, always did the best I could with it. Absolutely. So you mentioned that, you know, where you lived and being a resource with the university, you got exposed to lots of different types of nutrition problems. What sorts of things come to mind that you helped with over the years? Oh, wow. I, uh, you know, after, you know, I spent time as a county agent, then, you know, I moved to dairy science department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I served as a, as an outreach manager and researcher there for, you know, approximately 30 years. And we were, we were in a, uh, the Marshfield Ag Research Station where I work, where I'm actually sitting right now, uh, you know, it was right in the dead center of Wisconsin. And the two, two lar- second and third, I think, largest dairy counties in the United States are around so people knew where you were. I mean, they walked in the door, they called on the phone. Of course, later in my career, everything became email and texting and, and those kind of things. But, um, I mean, it was, we've got a big problem and we've got to figure it out. And so we saw, Barry, we saw everything. Um, you know, milk fever, uh, tetany was a real common thing that we, did a lot of work with the Marshfield Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory at the time with um, milks, fat suppression. Um, you know, we we also saw a lot of ergo-alkaloid issues here because it's low wet soil, so we had tons of reed canary grass, which is not a real cool product to feed to a transition cow. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for those in the audience that may not be aware of that. I mean, it, it has similar issues as, as fescue, uh, toxicity. So anyway, I mean, you know, we published a lot of research and we had a lot of, we had a lot of traffic and, uh, you know, I mean, it, it just, it taught me so much about, you know, there's the academic side of doing this, but there's also the, you know, the strange and the bizarre, uh, aspects of, of science and, you know, uh, you know, how things work on a dairy and, you know, dairy cattle are really tough animals, but they're also really sensitive at the same time to some very little things. So, um, yeah, we saw, we saw a lot of, uh, a lot of interaction with dairies 
and and nutrition consultants, veterinarians. I mean, we had a you know a community here turned into a statewide community, but yeah, we uh, we, we did the best we could with a lot of challenging situations. Yeah, the bridge from sort of generalized knowledge, which is necessary, right, to a solution on a specific place with a specific set of people and animals and crops is is sometimes a wide chasm to cross. <laughs> well, yeah, very very much so. Sometimes it really leads you scrambling almost into the, sometimes even into the rat and mice literature to try to figure out you know, what, what's, what's happening with something. Yeah, exactly. So kind of on that note, I'm curious, you know, you've had a very impactful, uh, long career helping the dairy industry. If you look back over your career, is there sort of one key research insight that unlocked the biggest gains that you saw on farms in the real world? Well, I would, Barry, I'd have to limit that to uh, to nutrition, dairy cattle nutrition, which was, you know, my major emphasis in, in research um, and growth and development of young cattle, too. Um, but, you know, two things. I, I can narrow it to two things, I think. One, one was uh, when the folks at Cornell came out with the the biohydrogenation of fatty acids in its role in milk fat suppression. I mean, geez, I, I spent, I don't know, 20, 25 years talking to dairymen and nutrition consultants about, you know, forage length and particle uh, length and buffering capacity and chewing times and feeding buffers and what the research was. And I, uh, you know, I, I mean, I remember Dr. Armitano explaining this to me. I remember, you know, uh, answering you, man. I, I said, "You mean three grams of CLA or conjugated linoleic acid is what's causing milk fat suppression?" I mean, I was just shocked. In a seven hundred kilo animal, right? Yeah, yeah, in a seven hundred kilo animal, and I was, I was just shocked by that. Well, sure enough, you know, as I, you know, as I transferred out of the research area, it was never my research area. I mean, that was you know, so aptly done by Tom Jenkins and, and Adam Locke at Michigan State, Kevin Harvertine at uh, Penn State. But, you know, we when I went to the feed industry, you know, we adopted a lot of that, and it made such a huge difference. It, it really did. I mean, milk fat suppression wasn't so mysterious anymore. As a matter of fact, we could, uh, you know, we could really, really control the outcomes uh, especially in summer, and and it was just a, it was a breath of fresh air, and it's some very neat research, really changed the industry. And Barry, if you look at the the milk fat percentage trends in the U.S., I mean, I know the geneticists want to take claim for they it. They want to credit for everything. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know the nutritionists want to take credit for it, but I mean, it has made such a marked improvement. I would say the second thing is NDF digestibility, and and I mean that. That sat in the weeds for uh, many years from Dr. Van Solis. But then, you know, there was a whole group of people in academia and in the laboratory industry that, you know, quickly, you know, converged on that kind of all at the same time. Uh, I mean, I know our group, uh, myself and Dr. Shaver, and then Michigan State, Mike Allen, and then the folks at Cornell, um, you know, getting commercial NDF digestibility made made a big difference. It took a lot of the mystery out of out of uh, 
out of the calories coming from NDF. And it, it just made diets uh, often more understandable um, that there were differences in, in, in NDF digestibility. So I, I would pick those two things from a dairy cattle nutrition standpoint that, you know, I think really, really did change the industry. Great answers. I, I agree with you there. All right. So one of the areas that you've focused on more lately is transition cow mineral nutrition. So, you know, there's, there's a variety of different people that listen to this podcast. So for those that don't think about maybe nutrition every day, can you start with a little bit of overview of the mineral challenges, the mineral imbalances that can occur in dairy cattle after calving? Well, Barry, I, I think there's three that, you know, I've worked with in my career and they're the big three. I mean, they're probably not any different than most people. That's calcium, magnesium, and, and, and phosphorus. I mean, obviously calcium is the most heavily studied uh, with milk fever. And then we kind of changed the name of that in my career to, to you know, subclinical hypocalcemia. Um and so, you know, there's just some concern about that. And, you know, and, you know, the basic stuff, you know, IVs and boluses and treatments and, and uh, you know, milk fever research and subclinical hypocalcemic research. So, you know, that's, that's, that's always been the big emphasis. It, in my world, though, magnesium probably um, played just as big on my plate. And, and it's for an odd reason. Uh, Central Wisconsin has no dolomitic limestone. Um, our bedrock is not dolomite. And so what happens, our soils get depleted in magnesium pretty quickly here uh, because the liming materials for, for many years were calcium carbonate. And of course, dolomite is calcium magnesium uh, material. And so we, we would get depletions of, uh, of magnesium pretty quick. And uh, uh, the, the, the secondary factor is it's low wet, low pH soils, which, uh, produce in grass forages, produce these compounds called transconitate. And, uh, that's one of the tetany mechanisms. So we would see a lot of early, even mid lactation cows just rapidly go down and not be responsive to calcium treatments. And, uh, you know, if you recognize that as tetany, it was relatively easy to treat, you know, you just bump the mag in the diet and, and you, you did different IVs, uh, to treat magnesium and, and our veterinarian, our local veterinarian community became pretty quickly aware that we were kind of in the tetany capital of the world. We saw a lot of it, um, and, and probably still do in this area. And then, uh, you know, phosphorus has always been kind of the enigma berry. Uh, you know, I phosphorus, it, you know, it, it went through the, the environmental issue and we lowered dietary phosphorus on lactating cattle, but on transition cattle, there was always this, there was always this uh, query out there. What is phosphorus doing? And, and if you look at the historical research with phosphorus, um, it was, it was kind of always there, but sort of nobody knew what to do with it. And that is, is that the higher, dietary phosphorus was in the pre-fresh period. And even some of that work was done at Michigan State. Diabetes Group did some of that, I, I think, with a student called Peterson. Um, but, but anyway, as dietary phosphorus increased, the incidence of milk fever also increased. 
Um, and, and there's probably a half a dozen, 10 research papers where, um, you know, where feeding too much phosphorus in the pre-fresh period was, was actually increasing uh, milk fever and, uh, you know, decreasing blood calcium levels at calving. And that research was, uh, Barry, was bits and pieces. It was just bits and pieces that were out there. It was always out there. Nobody ever really, you know, took a hard effort at the mechanism of that. Um, and so it was always kind of this enigma combined with uh, this uh, sort of concept of a phosphorus milk fever, which I'm not sure academia uh, has ever really known whether it exists or not, but it was sort of a catch-all. So the phosphorus component, you know, was kind of an ink, but, you know, until the last couple years, and there's been just a ton of emergent information on how this plays into hypocalcemia, which I think is just fascinating. I, uh, It's one of the more fascinating biological studies that I, I've been involved in. So did your interest in this grow from, you know, having helped helped farms with troubleshooting anything from tetany to milk fever and then just seeing this new research emerge or how did you decide to spend some some of your focus on this well you know i worked in the feed industry and the feed industry is entirely different learning experience than than academia you know, one no less or greater than the other okay and when i was in the feed industry i mean we worked with a lot of dcad programs uh you know different ones I, I mean the the part of the industry I, I work for you know kind of sold all of the decad products and uh you know th th that that system you know is heavily researched as we know and uh is 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 quite effective um but there are you know there are some you know there are some disadvantages associated with that and that is it it's a fickle it's fickle and difficult uh, to operate sometimes on a commercial dairy. You see, in a research project, you know, when you're doing a DCAD project, you have everything controlled for a certain period of time where you probably have the forages controlled and you have the supplements controlled and everything is in a in a small, smaller time frame window. But on a commercial dairy, you have forages coming in and out and changing and uh you know, different loads of grass coming in from different fields from, you know, there's, there's a high degree of variability. And of course, um, you know, you're, you're doing urine pHs and, and those kind of things and, and monitoring as you go. But all of a sudden, you know, you get into periods where things don't go the way the book says they should go. And, and sometimes on some dairies, it's it's really problematic. So anyway, you know, I'm, I'm wandering around your question, but what happened was is that these zeolite products uh, came into the marketplace, uh, I guess maybe four or five years ago from Europe. And, you know, we had some consultants working with dairies that, you know, were just always a little bit challenged working with DCAD programs. And I was very skeptical of, of the zeolite products, you know, when they first emerged. But, you know, we had some trend-setting nutritionists put some of these in kind of as a, you know, let's give this a shot, you know, and see if this works. And, you know, again, I was skeptical. But, you know, in working with those dairies and those consultants, 
it was really easy to figure out quickly that something major biologically had changed. And, uh, and for the most part, for the better. I mean, um, you know, you had, you had dairymen giving very strong opinions that this had made a very big difference, you know, in their operation. And so, um, you know, I, be, I became fascinated after talking to some really great dairymen and, again, being skeptical about you know, what, what was going on. How was this working? What, how did this how did this change things? How did this make sense? I've, Barry, I've always had that curiosity, you know, for for a, a major sea change. Is something going on? You know, we're talking about fatty acids. You know, you get very curious about that right away. What has changed in the cow to make a dairyman happy with something, you know? And so that's how I got interested in it. I, I think it was just, it, it wasn't from academia. It was, it was baptism under fire kind of interest. <laughs> is what Fair enough. So let let me step back for one second and just um, sort of lay out the the comparison here. So you, you mentioned that I would think of DCAD strategies as the dominant approach to preventing milk fever uh, and subclinical hypocalcemia uh, in the U.S. anyway, in the dairy industry, and that's dietary cation anion difference. And so we feed a diet with more strong anions than cations, which influences uh, acid-base status of the animal, promotes some urinary loss of calcium and ramps up bone release of stored calcium so that the cow's ready for the high demands post-calving. So again, I think of that as kind of the most widely adopted strategy to let the cow get ready for the need for calcium post-calving. So you mentioned zeolite. Help me understand, what does this do? Is it, is it anything to do with acid base? How does it work? Well, zeolite is, it's a synthetic zeolite. It's not, you know, mined zeolite. I mean, it's, it's manufactured in a facility where the process is controlled. Uh, zeolite A is, uh, you know, it's a, it's, has a high, uh, you know, ion exchange capacity. I mean, it, it's a sodium aluminum silicate is what it is. And so, uh, for lack of better terms or easier terms, it binds. And, uh, so many years ago, if you, if you look back in the 1960s and seventies, the, the research scientists were, were looking to lower, uh, dietary calcium or calcium restriction as a way of stimulating parathyroid hormone to get the animal to mobilize bone calcium uh, prior to calving. And so that was never really achievable because you, you couldn't get the calcium levels low enough. And so a group of researchers in Europe uh, started looking at these zeolite products as a way of binding calcium to get it low enough um, to be able to get uh, parathyroid hormone and 125-dihydroxyvitamin D to get them activated to prep this cow to, to cap. And so, you know, that was the original intent. But what really started to evolve through that process of that very early work on, on zeolite A was that uh, there, there became a, a kind of a, uh, of a knowledge that the zeolite A was helping with hypocalcemia and milk fever 
but it probably wasn't doing it through the calcium pathway. It was probably doing it through phosphorus homeostasis. And we have to understand that we've only understood phosphorus homeostasis for about the past 20 years. Uh, I mean, you look back at Hector DeLuca when he was at the University of Wisconsin, he was he was looking for this sort of mysterious, uh, I think it's phosphatonin is what the name of it is. Um, well, that's been found now, uh, FGF23. And, uh, you know, we, we really understand that the dietary phosphorus restriction and dietary calcium restriction actually mimic each other in a transition cow almost identically, although it's a different pathway. It's it's a different pathway. It's probably not a parathyroid hormone pathway. It's probably an FGF23 pathway. But these zeolite products uh, likely bind uh, dietary phosphorus, which is much easier to get low enough in the first place. I, I mean, you can get dietary phosphorus levels in a, in a pre-fresh diet at 0 0.3, 0 0.35, really easy. That adding zeolite A probably binds, my guess, is about 50% of them. Uh, so you're actually in a phosphorus restriction, and there is a there has been a growing amount of evidence. There's probably 10 zeolite trials in the world. There's currently, one was finished at Cornell. There's currently a very large one at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and there was probably, like I said, six or eight in Europe. So, so there's there's a fair amount of research evidence of of working with these products when it comes to hypocalcemia and milk fever pairing. Okay, so I haven't kept up. <clears throat> excuse me, I haven't consistently kept up in this space on the endocrine side. So I used to teach that sort of calcium and phosphorus are sort of co-regulated in that you know, given that bone is a calcium phosphorus complex, right? It, it kind of makes sense that if you tear down bone matrix, you're going to release both. And so uh, on the supply and demand side, they're sort of co-regulated. Is FGF23 thought of as, as a more specific phosphorus regulator? Uh, it is clearly uh, the, the main, the, there's multiple phosphorus regulators, but FGF23 in the literature is the main phosphorus regulator. Um, it's exactly the opposite of parathyroid hormone. When uh, when FGF23, and if you look at some of the recent presentations of Jesse Goff, who you are colleagues and friends with, and so am I, I mean, this is, this is introduced in his uh, presentations too. Um, you know, FGF23, what it does is it, um, when it's high, it... Uh, it shuts off uh, vitamin D in the kidneys, okay, and it, it allows the kidneys to excrete more phosphorus. Um, it it also um, will will not uh, it'll really prevent bone mobilization. So when dietary phosphorus is high, FGF twenty three is high, and it's 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 a hormone in the bones. It's produced by osteocytes, and uh, so what it's doing is, is it's it, FGF23's nature is to regulate phosphorus to keep it down, okay? Um, but when you restrict dietary phosphorus, the opposite event occurs. FGF23 drops. Some beautiful uh, sheep research done by Walter Grunberg in, uh, in Germany on this. Walter was at Purdue for a long time, too. But 
FTF 23 will drop and what it'll do is it will help upregulate uh, the active hormone vitamin D, okay? And then it will also um, it will also uh, help with uh, the sodium phosphate uh, transport mechanisms in the kidney. So the kidney resorbs phosphorus. And then, of course, it directly uh, it directly acts on the bone to uh, to uh, recycle bone phosphorus uh, to provide that missing phosphorus. So uh, FGF twenty three is really under under the control of phosphorus. And of course, when it goes after the bone matrix, it releases calcium. And so, if you look at the zeolite A feeding experiments, they're all literally identical. Blood phosphorus is dropped in half. Uh, you know, typical blood phosphoruses are five, six, four, five, six milligrams per deciliter. Uh, when zeolite A is fed, they're dropped to two. So the cow is slightly hos- or hypophosphatemic, but blood calcium levels go up 20, 25%. Uh, they'll consistently go above nine milligrams per deciliter. So it's a very pretty consistent response in the literature. So, again, I think we're understanding that calcium restriction and phosphorus restriction, although they operate on different mechanisms, they kind of yield the that outcome that the Neil Jorgensen's and folks in the 1970s were, were looking for. And uh, it, it's it's a it's a fascinating uh, new area of research. Thanks for filling me in on that. That's that is fascinating. Of course, the most important uh, question in with a product like this or a strategy like this is: Have you seen these actually be successful on commercial farms? What's your observations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they're very successful. No, I'm not. I'm not suggesting at all that DCAT isn't successful. It's just different farms sometimes require. Uh, you know different uh tools in the toolbox if you will so you know i'll I'll give you a classic example uh you know sometimes dairies really struggle with uh you know just the the day-to-day activities of managing decat for example uh they're stuck in a bunker with a certain forage that's very high potassium and this is going to be you know more challenging to deal with i mean it's just the reality of the of the situation and so the the zeolite products um, don't require that. They they don't require putting the cow into metabolic acidosis. Um, they don't require such a watchful eye over dietary potassium. Uh, and th- and there's some advantage of that. I mean, wh- one of the advantages of that is, is that you can feed some higher quality grasses or even some legume silage uh, to a point, which is really beneficial at getting your your pre-fresh dietary protein costs down. Yeah, dietary protein costs when you're feeding a straw corn silage diet are not cheap. Uh, you know, they're both seven, eight percent protein or even lower sometimes. So so that's a factor. So so there's there's opportunity. And when these products go in, if if uh you know the consultant that works with them or the company, I mean they're sold to everybody, I guess. If they understand that dietary phosphorus is is the is the mechanism, or or induction of a of a of a sort of a pseudo phosphorus restriction, and, and if they understand that and they keep their you know dietary phosphorus is 
known and controlled, you know, somewhere around 0.3, and and then feed 9, 10 grams of zeolite to go along with that per, per gram of phosphorus, which means about 400, 450 grams of zeolite typically. Um, the, the programs work very well. In combination with a veterinarian that understands if you draw blood, the blood calciums are going to be up, but the blood phosphoruses will be down because that's the that's the point of the that's the point of the product and the mechanism of how it works. Um, and so there's uh, there's been a growing market, um, you know, very very successful. Uh, you know, the decad still can be successful. It's just we have. We have more tools now uh, to be able to work with, which is, which is really, which is really good. Um, you know, sometimes you know on the zeolite products because they're, it's kind of a more aggressive mechanism. Maybe that's not fair, Barry. Uh, but uh, you know, it's fed for a shorter period of time. I mean, blood phosphorus can drop pretty quick when you feed zeolite A, and so you know, fourteen, fifteen days is is probably all you you know, need to be on the product. Uh, too long is probably not good. Um, so what the realities then get into grouping, you know, do, do you have a group on a farm that you can split the prefresh group and all those kind of things? And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. And if you can't, well, you know, you probably would stick with the DCAD program. It's offering flexibility is what it's offering. I, I don't, see it any more than than that way yeah so you, you already started to touch on the next piece i was going to ask you which is what are some of the nuances of let's say i'm working with a farm that's going to implement this um you already mentioned maybe the close-up period should be a little shorter like what about do you feed this to heifers any other keys to success that you've seen well i think it's like with dcad it, you know some of the data would suggest that you know two-year-old cows probably don't benefit from either DCAD or these programs as, as much as, as older, the multi-paris cows. I mean, that's, that's not different than, than, you know, doing nothing or benign neglect or DCAD or whatever. I mean, there was a, there was a DCAD review, I think done out of the Florida group that actually showed, you know, some negative milk responses to, to DCAD and positive milk responses. Uh, I don't think with the zeolite products that it's either positive or negative on on milk. Uh, it's more on hypocalcemia and control of milk fever. So the so the two year old group is is always if you it doesn't hurt to feed them, but if you've got a separate two year old group, you have to consider whether you want to feed them. Whether just you know sort of let, letting them be two year olds might be more appropriate. Um. You know, the, the nuances of feeding zeolite, you know, is a, a little shorter feeding period, really controlling dietary phosphorus, dietary calcium, believe it or not, you can be more flexible with. Uh, it could be a 0.5 or it could be a 0.7 of the diet. I, I don't think you want to get it extremely high or low or uh, get carried away with it, but it, it's, it's certainly the program is less sensitive to dietary calcium because you're you're implementing the phosphorus homeostasis pathway and and not calcium homeostasis. So uh, you know if you control you know those things, um, you know then there's there's subtle nuances about 
you know, you know, it's a real fine product. So, you know, you don't want it in a small batch. I mean, you want to make sure it's mixed, uh, or if the forages are really dry, you know, it can get in one corner of the mixer. We, we've seen some of those issues, but you know, those are materials handling issues rather than, than the science of it per se. And, uh, you know, and, and a person should monitor, you know, what's going on. But, you know, there's a lot of dairies with, with, with really good success with this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, haven't seen any major, major concerns, some minor ones, but no major ones. Okay. Thanks for filling us in on that. Um, that's definitely a question I'm getting routinely right now. What, what do you know about zeolite? Is that something I should look at? So I think very useful. I have an off-the-wall question for you. So if, if you were gotten a time machine today and you went back to being a 15-year-old and somebody stopped you from going into ag, what career path do you think you know you would have choose at that point? Oh my God, Barry. The, yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Uh I haven't thought about it a lot, but but I've answered it in my own mind before. I would go straight to biochemistry at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I would, and I would do the whole deal. I do the, I mean, if they'd let me in there, uh, <laughs> but you know, I would, uh, I would, uh, you know, I do the graduate degrees and stuff. I'm just fascinated by, from a biological mechanism, you know, how things work, and so, so I have to back up here just a little bit, you know, back to the zeolite. I mean. From my experience in the feed industry, why was this working? You know, I got to studying this, and I mean, I'm throwing literature papers all over the place trying to figure out how this stuff works, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it quickly emerged how this product and how how uh, sort of an artificial restriction of phosphorus would, would work. And this has been well supported by some European work now, uh, you know, very nicely with lots, lots of mechanisms. And so... I mean, I did all this stuff, throw on paper, just because I'm fascinated by it, you know. Well, then only to find out that my friend Tommy Crenshaw, a colleague in the animal science department, which now merged with Dairy Science at the University of Wisconsin, wrote this whole mechanism out for monogastrics. I mean, he, yeah, he had written the whole thing out, and of course, I don't get the Journal of Animal Science, you know, but he, I mean, he had this whole thing just so eloquently laid out about about how you know, low phosphorus, you know, really, really works with calcium metabolism. Of course, he was interested in bones and monogastric. And all you really have to do is you you just have to put in the missing pieces that dairy cows recycle a ton of phosphorus through saliva. And that's where these zeolite products, uh, you know, they're, that's what they're probably binding is salivary phosphate because it's so readily and easy, easy to bind at that level. I mean, that's at least a theory. But anyway, I got off your question a little bit. I, biochemistry, when, whenever I can, you know, sort of get into that, that that has always been, you know, like tinkering, you know, trying to figure out how something works. And once you do it, like, you know, it's like it answers like a question, a blast from your past, like, oh, you know, 20 years ago I had this dairy and we couldn't quite figure it out. And, oh, if I'd only known this at that time. So, yeah, I would pursue a career in biochemistry. Good answer. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AB Vista, 
feed intelligence, and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg & Schmidt, Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Your partner in improving animal performance, Berg & Schmidt. They provide high-quality, economical feed ingredients for ruminants like their well-researched coated nutrients and fat powders that can support cows with additional available energy, which improves their overall health, productive performance, and your cost efficiency. All right, we've got three wrap-up questions that we ask of every guest, and I'm real curious to see what your answers are. So first of all, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Oh, boys, not my favorite. I mean, like, I love to just pick it up and read, but the one I use use the most is the nutrient requirements of dairy cattle. I mean, uh, I've got the new one now, and you know, and it's starting to get ripped up like the old one. I mean, my job is my job is just you know always forced me into that reference. So that's the one on my shelf that you know comes out, goes back in, comes out, goes back in. So I use that one all the time. Great. What about your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Oh, um, well, I love the journals of Lewis and Clark. Um, I, I've read them twice. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, the abridged journals are just fun to read what they experienced. Uh, you, you know, they're written so well that you can almost place yourself in their journey from St. Louis to the Pacific Ocean. And then I think... Uh, you know, I, I think of this in other terms too, but you know, if I'm going to complain about the hardships of the day, uh, that doesn't really compare <laughs> to some of the stuff that they pulled off, you know, and it, it's just a, it's just a remarkable story of, of, of mankind. It, it really is. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and the information of all the indigenous people that they met and it was, I, I've, I've always enjoyed reading that. It's easy to forget how courageous they had to be to do that at that time. Yes. Amazing. Very much so. All right. Last but not least, uh, in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are less successful? Oh, I think that's pretty clear. Um, you know, dairy professionals like feed consultants and even dairymen themselves, you have to be open to new ideas. You have to be because, you you know, if you are sure that you know everything today, wait till tomorrow. I mean, and that's that. I guess that's the beauty of being a little bit older in this field. Uh, you will be surprised by by what information you believed for ten years um, really did not turn out to be that rock solid, and that something new could come along pretty quickly and. Uh, and, and displace an old, uh, an, an old technology. Um, I always, uh, one of my, you know, I'm probably being long winded here, but one of my fascinations when I was in graduate school is I'd always go read archive, uh, agricultural research. And I remember reading when they first did the first milking machine studies at the university of Wisconsin. Well, you know, if you were stuck on hand milking cows, uh, you, you know, that technology got replaced pretty quick, you know. So, <laughs> so you, you always have to be you always have to be open minded and, and willing to to learn and think about something and 
may not be the best idea, but you know, just never be closed-minded about something because something something could come along. And and that's when that's when it's fun. I mean, for me, that's when it's really fun, is when something new and neat comes along that really helps dairy producers. I'm all for it. Yeah. Great. Good wisdom there. Well, uh, Pat Oppen, thank you so much for joining us on the Dairy Podcast Show. I think that was a fantastic conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks for letting me do it. I enjoyed it very much. So again, this is Barry Bradford signing off from the Dairy Podcast Show. And if you haven't subscribed, don't forget to do it now. See you next time.